Well, we're going to be in 2 Timothy 2. Let's open our Bibles this morning and be instructed by the Word of God. We're going to pick it up in verse 3. Remember, last week we only did two verses. We just did one and two, talked about making disciples. That's definitely the role of the pastor. It applies to all of us as well who are believers. And then this week, we're going to pick up and finish out this paragraph, 3 through 7 this morning. Let's look at the verse 3 in the first phrase. It says, share in suffering. How would you enjoy receiving that invitation? I'm inviting you to suffer. My two-year-old right now has learned the art of the con. He has learned uh, when he wants to keep something that is his, he strikes like a mountain lion. Off of the perch, down, the baby's crawling towards something that remotely sniffs of his, and he just pounces, mine, that's mine, you can't have it, mine. So he's got that down. But when he's very clear and aware of something that isn't his, this is what he says. He walks up nicely with a smile. He says, can we share that? <laughs> oh, then he gets so clear. He's so sure of the biblical truth of sharing that he'll just walk up and say demonstratively, we can share that. He gets the art of the con, right? That sharing is an invitation typically. It's always something that's inherently pleasant to us. If I invite you to share a meal and you're hungry, or if I invite you to sit down next to this fire when you're cold, that's a visible thing that I'm trying to do to you that's inherently pleasant. It's visibly edifying that I'm inviting you to share in. That's what share typically means, right? You have something good and you need to share it with somebody else. In the case of a two-year-old, you have something that I want, you need to give it to me. So we know how that word sharing works. But let's ask this question. Is Paul seeking Timothy's ultimate good by asking him, inviting him to share in suffering? Because this is the third time in the book of 2 Timothy that the word has come up or the idea has come up. And it's going to pop up again in the, in the remaining verses and chapters 11 more times. This idea of endurance or persecutions or suffering 11 more times. Not even halfway done with this idea. And he's inviting Timothy, hey, share this with me. Jump in and share this. So let's answer the question with a resounding yes. He is seeking Timothy's ultimate good and visible edification by inviting him to share in suffering. Scroll down to verse 12 on that same page real quick. It says, which can read that first line, if we endure, meaning enduring suffering, we will also reign with him. What a glorious promise. Do you see that? If we endure, we will reign with Jesus. That those who faithfully endure suffering reign with the Son of God. That's an unbelievable promise. This idea of suffering throughout Scripture is everywhere, but it has a very good other side of the coin, a very edifying, a very positive, an eternally glorious other side of the coin. In another letter that Paul writes, he writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he says this to that church there. He says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you, meaning the church, we boast about you and the churches of our God, for what? For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God 
that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So Paul's writing a letter to this church saying, well done. It's so great that you guys are undergoing so much suffering because that serves as evidence that God was righteous to grant you entrance into his kingdom because you're willing to suffer for it. That's an obvious manifestation that you guys are saved. So Paul's like, awesome. I'm so glad that you're enduring suffering. And we boast about that suffering to all these other churches because your suffering is evidence of your salvation. And that's not a concept that's unique to Paul. Jesus says this in Mark 13, verse 13. He says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus says, you're going to endure suffering, but the one who comes out on the other side of having endured it, you will be saved. That those who endure suffering are the saved. Those who endure suffering are the elect. So what are we to infer from these words of Jesus on the topic of suffering? What about the one who doesn't endure to the end? What are we to pull from that? If someone's unwilling to endure suffering in the name of Jesus, then the church has rightful cause to question whether or not they are saved. Not that they lost their salvation, because that is a biblical impossibility. John 10, you are my sheep and no one can snatch you out of my hands. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. 1 John 5, 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So we're not talking about losing salvation. That's a biblical impossibility. What we're talking about is, were you ever truly saved? Because Jesus says in Mark 13, 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. So he's saying, join in me with this suffering because obedience to Jesus will entail some real pain. We're gonna get there. In 2 Timothy 3, 12, Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's just going to happen. That's what we signed up for. And who did Jesus say is the only way to eternity, the only way to the Father? He said it's himself, right? He is the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. Now, what does Jesus say about the way that leads to, to life? In Matthew 7, 14, he says that way is narrow, it is hard, and few people find it. So what was salvation? What was following Jesus always going to entail? He says this in Luke 14, 26, 27, and 33. How casual does this sound in following Jesus? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Skip down to verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Does that sound casual? Does that sound comfortable? 
but it's straight out of the mouth of Jesus. Now, after hearing all of that, that's a huge downer. And then that makes us start thinking about friends and family members who we have that maybe aren't enduring. But how sweet do the words of Jesus sound in Matthew 11? After hearing all of those things, Matthew 11, 28 through 30, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How marvelously sweet is that? That that's what it's like to follow Jesus even though on the front end you know what you're signing up for is suffering and pain and being hated. That sounds so good. Or what about the promise at the end of the Great Commission? And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That promise becomes so rich and so precious to us because even if you are the last Christians on earth, if for whatever reason that's the group you end up being in, Jesus is going to be just as present with you as he was with the disciples, with the apostles. Even to the end of the age, he's going to be there. We hear these promises about the the grace of God, and we hear these promises about the presence of Jesus and the, the lightness of his yoke, because it's still a yoke, but it's light and it's easy comparatively. We hear those things, and they don't often resonate with us because we think that following Jesus already is casual. It'd be the equivalent of this, of a lifeguard coming up to you with a rescue tube, their CPR pack, their first aid stuff, and walking up to you and saying, I am going to be here, and I am going to watch over you until you leave. I am always going to be here watching over you and keeping you safe. But you were sitting under the portico reading a book in a lawn chair, not swimming. So when you hear that promise from the lifeguard, you're like, oh, that's cool, great, fantastic. But what we're really getting the promise of is you're about to be kicked out of a helicopter into the tumultuous North Atlantic Sea and a U.S. Coast Guard rescue swimmer is is saying to you right before you get booted out the door, hey, I'm going to be right there. I'm going to be right there with you when you get dropped into the frozen, raging ocean a guy who's more than equipped and more than able to see you through that storm. That's what Jesus is promising us into those things so that we can then suffer hardship. Because if it wasn't true and if he wasn't there, we wouldn't be able to endure. We wouldn't be able to share in that suffering with any kind of consequence. So this is not a trivial thing that Paul is calling Timothy to do. Not only does he need to do this as an example to his church because he is the pastor of his church, but sharing and suffering is consistent in keeping with his new birth. Sharing and suffering is inherently Christ-like. Sharing and suffering is evidence of salvation, of saving faith. So then what is Timothy, what are we to share in suffering as? Well, Paul's going to use three illustrations to make this point to kind of flower this out, to help us to understand how do we do this? He's going to talk about a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. So we're going to see three things as to how we become and continue to grow into true servants of Jesus Christ with a soldier, athlete, and a farmer. We're going to look at the focus, the order, and the hustle, the hard work 
the effort of what a servant of Jesus Christ is to do. So verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So we're supposed to suffer like soldiers. Whenever I see a unique word like that or a unique idea, something that pops out, I always want to know in Scripture, is that anywhere else? Or is this the only place this has ever been? Is this kind of a unique idea? Is this anywhere else? Well, let's do this with the soldier. Soldier's one of these unique words. We know it's a consistent theme uh, in the Old Testament, right? Because we know that Gideon and Deborah and David and Samson and Saul, those are, those are all warriors, right? Those are all soldiers. They engage in military conflict. But is it a consistent theme in the New Testament? Is it a consistent theme for us? Does the New Testament use this idea anywhere else? I'm just going to rattle these off. You can just write them down if you want. Just write the references down. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 1 Timothy 1, 18 says, wage the good warfare. 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the full armor of God. Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of the Lord is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. A sword is not for cutting watermelons. It's for fighting. So this imagery of, of warfare, of the soldier, is all over the New Testament. So this is consistent with this. So how are we to function then as good soldiers of Jesus Christ? Verse 4 is going to lean into that. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. How do we function as good soldiers? We function by being unencumbered and of a singular focus. An unencumbered soldier and a soldier of a singular focus is the one who's doing his job. Active military in times of war, they don't have time to keep up with civilian affairs. They're not concerned about the state of their lawn care. They, they aren't thinking about, oh yeah, I'm really excited about that new Starbucks coming in downtown. They don't care about that. They don't know all the latest movies and celebrities that we're all supposed to care about now. They don't know, they don't, they're not up on that. And they aren't continually to update their roster of their fantasy football team because they're at war. So they don't have time for those kinds of things that when you're not at war, you do have time for. So the soldier is focused and unencumbered and they can't engage in those matters because they're more occupied with the enemy shelling them with artillery than they are about other extraneous things. They can't engage in those matters because they're consumed with offensively fighting the battle. That's what consumes their entire life. Their mindset, their thinking, their life rhythms, when they get up, when they go to sleep, when they eat, it consumes everything. Because you're at war. People are shooting at you. They don't work nine to five in wartime. They work 24 seven. You're always on. You don't like, oh, okay, you guys can go home for a little bit, come back, we'll see you on Monday. It doesn't happen in war. It doesn't happen for a soldier. They can't engage in those matters because they have direct orders from a superior officer that has ultimate priority in their lives. See, a soldier is being insubordinate if he's not seeking to obey the orders of his commanding officer. That's not something that he can just kind of choose to do or not do. If he doesn't do them, then there's problems. He has orders from his commanding officer, and he must obey them. And if he's found abdicating his duty, then there are consequences. Because he has a different purpose, and he has a different authority than civilians. 
A general can't tell me what to do. But he can tell everybody in the army what to do. So he's a different commanding officer. So if he blends those lines, then there's a problem. And James 4 talks about this in light of the Christians. James 4, verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Don't you know that if you be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God? This is what the soldier knows very clearly. That if I try to get out at camp and go to, leave the barracks and go hang out at a club or hang out at a bar or go to a game, I'm going to get in trouble because I don't get to live like a civilian does. I live like an enlisted person does. That makes, Paul makes this key distinction here too. Uh, but this doesn't mean that Christians can't do anything that's not inherently related to Bible study, prayer, or going to church. That's not what that means. John Stott, in his commentary, he made a very clear statement on this. He says, So what is forbidden the good soldier of Jesus Christ is not all secular activities. Rather, it's entanglements, which, though they may be perfectly innocent in themselves, may hinder him from fighting Christ's battles. This counsel applies specially to the Christian minister or pastor. So it's not that you can't have hobbies as a Christian, this imagery of a soldier is not saying, hey, you're not being a good servant of Jesus Christ if you like to go hunting or if you like to go play co-ed softball or if you like to build model planes or if you like to make crafts or whatever it is. It's just saying when that crosses the line into an entanglement, then you have a problem. And you're the only one who's going to be able to honestly stand before the Lord and say this is an entanglement or this is just an activity. So we have to reckon with that, but there's a key distinction that helps us do that. In this analogy, the idea of pleasing the one who has enlisted them. See that in verse 4? Since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. His commanding officer. The one who enlisted him. He has this idea. True soldiers long to be found rightly carrying out the orders they've been given by their superiors. Because they want to do the job. They're there. They signed up. They volunteered. And they want to be found doing it rightly. They want to please this commanding officer, this one focus. That's the reason that he can ignore, she can ignore all other things that are going on in the world and only care about the small little military bubble because all they care about is pleasing their commanding officer. They have a singular focus on that. And they know if they get wrapped up in civilian affairs, they won't achieve that goal. They won't won't be able to do it if they're tangled up in all the other things. So they don't care about that other stuff. It's not that they're going, well, I feel bad. I'm going to have to turn over this thing or this has become an entanglement now, so I can't, I can't do it anymore. No, they're like, great, throw it all away. All I want to do is please this leader, this superior officer. And the same is true for us with Christ, that we have an immovable gaze locked upon our commanding officer who is Jesus Christ. See, we're all like kids at your baseball games or at your recital or at your production or at your performance or whatever it was. That What do they always say? Mom, Dad, did you see that? Did you see me do that? And it's in the heart of a child, you know it's not legalism, like I'm earning your favor or I'm just trying to keep you away from me in anger. It's I want to please you. Did you see that? Did I did a good job, Dad? Did I do a good job, Mom? They engaged in that. And what's the most glorious thing that you've ever heard as a child yourself or you can say to your own child, I'm proud of you. 
you did a good job. And that makes that kid just beam. And that's us. That's us as soldiers. That we long to please the one who's enlisted us. So we move now from the focus into the order with this athlete idea. Look at verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. An athlete is the image of an athlete. Consistent theme in the New Testament. I hope so because I use those illustrations all the time. I don't want to be extra biblical. But I think that we are. In 2 Timothy 4 and 7, it says, I have finished the race. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. 1 Corinthians 9, 26. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Hebrews 12, 1. Let us run with endurance the race set before us. So this athletic idea of training and straining and working hard and competing, not against fellow Christians in any way, but competing against the own, your own sin and striving for greatness in the Christian life, that's, that's in the New Testament all over the place. So this isn't a thing that Paul's just got the corner market on or that he only used one time. This is, this is everywhere. And what does it say? Verse 5, this athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So in order to be crowned champion... What does the winning athlete have to do? He has to win, right? Obviously, we get that. Like, you have to come in first. But is there something that you could do that, though you finished first, keeps you from getting the crown? Yeah, if you cheat or if you don't play according to the rules. That will keep you. You may end up at the front of the race, but are you going to be disqualified? Because there are rules in every athletic event. We don't show up to a game, a football game on Saturday or Sunday, just, just to watch guys run around in circles and throw the ball to themselves and watch 100 guys just do whatever they want. No, there are rules. You have to play inside those lines, and you can't move until the ball moves, and you have to stop and the whistle blows. There's rules. There's order to the game that, that makes sense. So you can win all the Tour de France's you want, but if we find doping in your blood, we're going to take all your trophies away. Because you cheated. You did not play according to the rules. You can hit all the home runs you want, but if we find HGH steroids in your blood, you're not getting in the Hall of Fame. Because you cheated. If you had a friend, you guys were going to play golf, and he comes back at the end of the day and says, I shot a 59. Those people who don't know golf, you want a low score, high score is 150. That's where I'm at in golf. 59 is like an unbelievable score. It's an incredible score. He says he shot the 59, and you're like, man, I was in the golf cart with you. You lived in the sand and in the water. You're wet and sandy all over. You did not shoot a 59. How could you possibly have shot a 59? Well, every time I hit a shot I didn't like, I just hit it again. And I just counted the ones I actually used. Then you were like, uh, well, then I'm going to put you down for 35 over par because you didn't win. And if he protested, you'd be like, dude, it doesn't matter what you think you did. There are rules and you don't get to win. Just because at the end you say, I shot a 59. There are rules that govern the game. And you have to compete according to them. Otherwise, you don't win the prize. So do we see the imagery there that the Christian life is not customizable to every single person? Why would he bring up this idea of you don't win unless you compete according to the rules. You don't get to live the Christian life however you want to. You don't get to decide, well, this is how I live the Christian life. You can live the Christian life a different way. 
there, there is one book that governs all of us. We have one. So you can't say, well, I'm going to glorify God by uh, rejecting corporate worship and the local church altogether. You don't get to glorify God that way. Well, I'm going to glorify God by spending all my money on me and never giving any money to him. You don't get to do that. I'm going to glorify God by keeping the Great Commission, and I'm going to keep the Great Commission by just hanging out with my three Christian friends all the time. That's how I'm going to do that. You don't get to do that because we have rules listed out that govern the game that we play. We have order. There are parameters on the Christian life of how it is to be lived. You don't get to decide how God will be glorified in your life and efforts. That's been decided for you. That's been decided for me. I don't get to write my own job description. It's been written for me. I don't get to choose that. We don't get to choose how we live the Christian life. He spelled it out in the Bible. He's given us a faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints, Jude verse 3. I don't get to edit it. I don't get to update it. I don't get to contextualize it. I don't get to make it relevant, whatever that means. We have the Christian life laid out as is. It's not up for negotiation. The Bible is not disputable. It says it, and you're not doing it, then you must change. That's the only thing. You're like, well, I don't think the rules should be that way. Doesn't matter. You don't get to write the rule book. We have it written down here. Like, well, I think the guy who, who gets the less points at the football game gets to win. Doesn't matter if you think that, you're never going to win. The rule book's already been written. That would be a convenient rule for the Aggies this year. But nevertheless, there is a rule book. You can try. You can try to just do life the way that you want to do it. You can just live, you know, according to your own rules, but you're not going to be crowned victorious at the end. That person who says, like, I, I want to be a a Christian, but I don't want to do anything that Christians do, that person's not a Christian. You don't get to live by your own rules. When you end up at the finish line after cutting through the infield of the track, like, I want to run around on the orange part. I'm just going to run on the grass real fast. And then you end up first. What is the, the, the race proctor going to say? Disqualified. Invalid. You don't even get a finisher's ribbon because you didn't stay on the track. So that's true of us. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me just as I also imitate Christ. He's not saying, I'm making this thing up. I got my own Paul thing going on. He says, no, I'm just following Jesus. So as much as I follow Jesus, then you follow me. But as soon as I don't follow Jesus, then you don't follow me anymore. He's not blazing his own trail. He's not creating his own faith. There is one pattern laid before us as that of Jesus. That's what we have to do and know and believe as athletes in the Christian faith. And the last one, so we got this idea of focus and order. Now, where's the effort? It comes with the farmer. Look at verse six. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Is the idea of farming anywhere else in our New Testament? Absolutely. That's a, that's a softball. Everybody in here is thinking, oh, I can think of all these things, the parable of the sower, the parable of the wheat and tares, the parable of the soils. Think of uh, Jesus talking about the fields are white for harvest, referring to taking the gospel out. Luke 9, 62 says, Jesus said to them, no one who puts his hand on the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus says in John 15, 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God causes the growth 
James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of fruit, or by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits among his creation. This is the most replete idea of the three throughout the New Testament. It's everywhere. There's this farming stuff everywhere. But what does it say about the farmer? Verse 6, who ought to have the first share of the crops. Who would get the reward of a bountiful harvest when the season comes? Who does it make sense? That guy should get the best crop. That guy should get the most. The lazy do nothing or the hard worker? No, it's, it's a backwards economy if the lazy do nothing gets a share of the crops. That's communism. That's inherently unbiblical. Who gets the share of the crops? The hard worker. The hard worker gets the share of the crops. This is an urging to strenuous effort. The kingdom of God and your own personal holiness will not be brought about effortlessly. It will cause strenuous effort. Farming in the first century was back-breaking work. So this analogy here is not synonymous with you getting a tomato plant from Lowe's and keeping it in a pot on your back porch. It's not the same thing. Because this is back-breaking work. You ever seen pictures of the Middle East, of the Near East? It's rocky. It looks like hill country. So you're chunking rocks out, and you're, you're digging rows with hand tools. This is back-breaking work. And you know that if you don't do it, you won't eat. This is hard work that he's calling us too. And unlike the soldier and unlike the athlete, it's completely devoid of any excitement or any praise. There, there is no applause for the farmer. Nobody makes movies about farmers like they do about heroic soldiers, right? When was the last time you saw a farmer and then he stayed a farmer the whole time and he just farmed the whole time? No, it's like he's a farmer and then something else comes along that's bigger and better and he leaves and goes and does that. And when was the last time you saw bleachers set up next to a pasture to cheer on the farmer as he cuts hay? Like, Woo, get it! Like Nobody's cheering that. There's no applause there. Nobody even cares. People don't even know where their food comes from. It's not a grocery store. This is, this is a call to a, a humdrum, day in, day out, almost just plodding monotony. The same thing over and over. Nobody cares about the long process. They're just going to get mad when there's no food at the end. But it's the day in, the day out. That's the hard work of the farmer. Totally devoid of excitement. But that daily grind and that daily grind alone is what yields the bountiful harvest. You can't decide to be a good farmer the day before the harvest. You have to decide that months ago, a full year ago, you had to decide that. And it's day in and it's day out. This is the Christian life. This is the Christian ministry. When was the last time you had a cheering section when you woke up at 5 a.m. at 6 a.m. and sat down at your kitchen table to read your Bible? Anybody cheering for you for that? Was, was that we, we've tried to make that a cheering section by you kind of organize your cup and your Bible and your highlighter. You take a picture of it, put it on Facebook. Nobody cares about that. Nobody's liking that over and over and over because there's no cheering section for that. But that's what it takes. It's a day in, day out. What about moms? When you make that kid be respectful when nobody's looking. You got movie makers coming knocking on your door saying, I want to make a movie of your life. No, but if you don't do it when they're two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight, then it's going to be wretched when they're 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. It's a day in, day out. No praise, no glory. Does your boss giving you extra kudos? Are you building relational capital by being here today? No, it's not getting you anything. 
from them. There's no praise, there's no lauding. But you know what you are doing? You're steadily laying one brick upon another of the house that is finishing well. That's what the book of 2 Timothy is about. It's finishing well. You're building into things eternal when you do that day in, day out things that nobody praises. Occasionally, Christian work does get a lot of notice, does get a lot of praise, but it's typically only around major disasters, right? Everybody suddenly went to church after Harvey, right? Everybody was like, oh, I'm a member of that church after Harvey, right? There's so much good going on, a lot of press going on, but, but nobody's there with cameras at your quiet time. 5 a.m. on Monday morning. Nobody's there. But that's what it takes to finish well. That you're actively participating in the Spirit's work of building you up into the image of Jesus Christ. And that's always going to be hard work, and that's why it's unpopular. And there's always going to be, we will do anything we can to reason away the hard daily work of the Christian life. We'll, we'll do whatever we can to just say, that's not what it's going to be for me. So we'll make our worship music unbelievably loud and unbelievably moving and just so overwhelming that if you come to church every week, you'll get so excited. Or, or we'll just live for these emotional highs. But those don't last. That's why they're called highs. It's the day-in, day-out work. That's the only thing that's going to produce anything. J.C. Ryle, he was a, uh, a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, 1800s in England, but he's an Anglican guy. And he's a good Anglican guy. He wrote this in his book, Holiness. He said, our God is a God who works by means, and he will never bless the soul of that man who pretends to be so high and spiritual that he can get on without them. You hear that? It sounds like us. That's the 1800s. We go, man, I'm not being so legalistic to just like read my Bible every day. And I'm not being so legalistic that I, I got to go to church. And I, I don't have to be legalistic. I have a relationship, not a religion. Well, you're working then outside of the parameters of the Christian life of growing in holiness and obedience in Christ. Because it says it's a hard work. It's the hardworking farmer. It's the athlete. It's the soldier. Those aren't easy jobs. Those aren't desk jobs. But that's what he says. That's what he's lined out for us to live by. So this is not a call to legalism. Legalism, rightly defined, is doing things to earn favor with God for salvation. That I do these good things, and then that is what gives me salvation. That's legalism. But what we've done is we take legalism and we apply it to everything. Everything we don't want to do, that's legalistic. That's legalistic. That's legalistic. Now, is it biblical? Then you, know, you can't call it that. So this is a call to Christian discipline. Nobody gets good at anything. Nobody grows at anything without discipline, without staying with it day in and day out. Now, how does Paul conclude the whole section? Verse 7. The whole paragraph ends here. Think over what I say, Timothy, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. If Timothy will meditate on this, then God will open his eyes to these truths. That's what Paul's asking him to do here at the end. See how it got very personal right there? Think over these things. It's almost like he jumped back into the letter to be a person in it, not just a distant entity. Think over these things, Timothy. Paul's telling Timothy that merely reading these words is not enough. It's never going to be enough to just merely read these words. So the problem is not your reading of the Bible. It's the problem is how you are reading the Bible. Occasionally people come to me and say, Pastor, I'm reading my Bible every day and it's not working. Nothing's happening. I'm not growing. Relationships aren't any better. 
I, what, what, what's, what's going on? I just asked him, what did you read today? Uh, well, then you didn't read it. That's, so the problem is not the, the tool. The problem is the user of the tool. And I think that if I can just read it real quick, then I'll magically rabbit foot and I'll feel better and I'll get better and everything will be better. It takes hard work. Paul says, you have to think on this, Timothy. You have to sit on this. You're going to have to meditate on this. What did it mean when you read? What was the main idea of what you read today? How did you apply what you read today? Or how are you planning to apply what you read today? Those are the right questions, not just did I read. Paul says, Timothy, you have to think on this. And that's, that idea is all out, all through Scripture. Psalm 119.27 says, Make me to understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Make me to understand it. Help me to get it. It's the idea of ruminating. Any ag majors out there, you know what ruminating means? It means chewing the cud. It means that cow's chewing on that grass, goes down in the stomach, and he brings it back up to chew on it again. To get all the nutrients out of it. That's the idea. I'm not going to let it go until I squeeze every single drop out of it. I'm going to hang with it. I'm going to ruminate. I'm going to meditate on these words. This is what Paul says. Because if you don't figure it out after a quick reading, do we give up and move on? Or do we trust what God says in Ephesians 1.18 that his Holy Spirit will enlighten you to the things above? All we have to do is pray for that. But there's no timeline. We'll enlighten you immediately. We'll enlighten you upon the third reading. It just says will. So we continually pray. That's what Psalm 119 is all about. Help me to see this. Help me to get it. Help me to see it. That's what it's all about. Because if we don't figure out the meaning of a passage or how to apply it after one quick reading and we give up, that's a horrible practice for all of life. Do you treat your spouse like that? Well, he was being weird. He said that weird thing today, so I'm just going to pretend like I didn't even hear it and just move on. Or what she said then, that was just seemed, I don't know, it was just, it was uncomfortable, I don't get it, it felt weird, so I just pretend like I didn't hear it. I'm just going to move on. Does that lead to a good marriage? No, you sit down and say, "What what did you say, and why did you say it like that? What was the heart behind that? How did that connect to things that you've said before? How was that going to connect with us moving forward? It's the same thing for Bible study. That's so what Paul's telling her to do is just sit there and ruminate on it because it's going to take hours and hours and hours of you pouring over God's word in order for it to yield the fruit of understanding. And Paul knows that. And he tells Timothy to do that because we're not inclined to do that. We're not going to receive the blessings of God's word by our occasional skimming of a few verses here and there. It's going to take a long time. It doesn't take fancy degrees. It just takes being able to read English. That's it. If you have the Holy Spirit within you, then he's enlightening you. So rest assured, brothers and sisters, God's word will not return void. Your study of Huckleberry Finn and trying to see the imagery of Mark Twain will return void. You spend time looking at what does the river mean? What does the raft mean? That will return void. But the word of God, you're trying to figure out what does that phrase mean, will never return void. It's never a waste of time. That word that saved you, that word that said repent and believe in Jesus Christ, that word that you got there, that's the same word that's going to carry you through to the end. So trust it. Meditate on it. Ruminate on it because the Christ of our salvation, the one who came and died, rose again, and that we believe in him, 
This, this one that we say is everything. What is he called in John 1? He's called the Word, the Word incarnate. And it takes hard work like a soldier, like an athlete, and like a farmer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth. Thank you that you haven't hidden the truth. We thank you that you told us that pulling the truth out is not going to be a lackadaisical undertaking. But we thank you that you have equipped all of us. We thank you that, that you call us to suffering, but you say you're going to be right there. And you're not expecting anything of us that you yourself didn't do as a flesh and blood human being. We don't deserve a savior like you. We don't deserve to be in your presence like we do. We don't deserve any help or any assistance in understanding the Bible, the manual you've given us. But you give us all of that. You desperately want us to understand that when we seek you as your people, you're not hiding from us. You're not running from us. You're not trying to confuse us. We take all those promises, we take them to the bank. We lean on them. We have to have them. Lord, help us to trust the word to do the work with our lost children, with our lost neighbors and coworkers, family members. Help us to trust your word to do what it says it will do because we know that it will not return void. The word that saved us will carry us through because that word is Jesus Christ. And it's in his name alone that we pray. Amen.